Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for amazing love, for amazing kindness in that you send your Son into this world who lived on our behalf and revealed you to us. We praise you, Lord, that our eyes are open and that we can see Christ. Our prayer is that as we dive into this book, that, Lord, we would get a clearer vision of Christ. Our prayer is that those who are here and who are still dead in their sins, and those who will ever hear this, Lord, we pray that you would reveal Christ because John wrote this book so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ. But Jesus, we ask that you would mightily work in the service. Spirit, we ask that you would carry these words to each heart. I pray that you would give me grace to take us through this passage of Scripture. And even though it is familiar to us all, may it be fresh once again because your Spirit illumines our mind. I ask this for your glory. Amen. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 1. And as we said, today is the day when we are diving into this gospel. And our goal over the next probably year and a half to two years to work through every verse of this amazing gospel. Speaking of this book, Augustine said the following, John's gospel is deep enough for an elephant to swim and shallow enough for a child not to drown. This is certainly true of this book. John uses very simple and concise language, and yet he communicates profound truths. This is one of the simplest books to read in the original language. In fact, John uses only about a thousand words to write the entire Gospel of John. The language is simple, but it is not simplistic, because the depth of theology that is expressed in this simple language is truly astounding. Now, we have already formally introduced the book, so you are somewhat familiar with the structure. And over the next four weeks, our goal is to work to, through the prologue that John writes here, first 18 verses. Today and the next Sunday, we're going to work through the first nine verses in which we are presented with the pre-incarnate God. And the following two Sundays, we're going to look at the rest of it under the title of the incarnate God. Our goal today is to examine the opening verses. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says regarding the first five verses of this book. This preface forms the quintessence of the whole book, and it is composed of simple, short, condensed propositions. Nowhere in the Bible shall we find such clear and distinct statements about our Lord Jesus Christ's divine nature. Nowhere shall we find so many expressions which for want of mental power no mortal can fully grasp or explain. Very encouraging when you're trying to preach this. In no portion of Scripture is it so deeply important to notice each word and even each tense employed in each sentence. In no portion of Scripture do the perfect grammatical accuracy and verbal precision of an inspired composition shine out so brightly. It is not, perhaps too much to say, that not a single word could be altered in the first five verses of St. John's Gospel without opening the door to some heresy. That is exactly true, as you will see. Now join me as I read first five verses before we dive into our text. John writes this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the light was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, since the objective of the Gospel of John is to present us with the portrait of Jesus Christ, that is exactly what John does in this opening section. The opening section to the Gospel of John is so distinct from every other synoptic gospel. For example, Mark begins his account with the ministry of John the Baptist. Mark 1.1 says this in the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make created the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And then Mark goes on to present John the Baptist. 
Matthew begins his account with the genealogy of Jesus. You remember he traces the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to David and to Abraham. Now Luke comes along, and just like Matthew, he gives us an account of the birth of Christ. In fact, even an expanded account of the birth of Christ. But in chapter 3, Luke traces the lineage of Jesus, not to David, not to Abraham, but all the way back to Adam. And then comes along John, and he says, I can do one better. He says, in the beginning was the Word. Now before we examine each phrase in our verses... I want to talk for a second about this word. In the beginning was the word. And it is true that countless trees have been sacrificed and barrels of ink have been spilled in order to understand or explain why John chose this title, Lagos. Could it be because he wanted to borrow a term from philosophy of his day so that he could relate to his readers? Is it possible he's referring to Christ as Logos because he is the wisdom of God? Or maybe because Christ is the expression of the mind of God, which is expressed through words. That's why John uses this title. Or perhaps because Jesus is the one of whom Old Testament prophets wrote. And he was the one who was spoken of in the Old Testament and the one who has come in the New. Or maybe he is the word simply because he is the revealer. Of God. Now, John doesn't tell us explicitly in this text why he chose this title, but the context, as we will read, will explain it to us. Now, just so we're not confused, we know that we are talking about Christ. When John says, In the beginning was the Word, this is a reference to Christ. And the reason why we know that, because if you skip down to verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Obviously, this is a clear reference to Christ who put on human flesh. Therefore, everything in verses 1 through 13 applies to Jesus Christ. And rather than speculating on the motives of John, why he chose to use this title, Logos, or the word for Christ, we will work through the text, and in the coming weeks, we will see why John chose this title to represent Christ. Now, in the opening verses of this gospel, John makes six claims about Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3, and I want to examine four of those claims, and the next Sunday, we'll take the other two. The four claims that John makes about Christ are these. Jesus is eternal. Claim number two, Jesus is distinct from the Father, Claim number three, Jesus is God. And claim number four, Jesus is the creator. Now remember, John told us in John chapter 20 that he's writing this gospel so that we would believe in Christ. Therefore, the proposition that I want to defend today is this. You must believe in Jesus Christ because he is eternal God, the creator of all things, visible and invisible. This is John's goal. He wants you to believe in Christ. If you're not a believer, based on this, John says you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a believer, your faith should grow as you understand who Christ is as he is presented in this text. Let's begin with the first claim. Jesus is eternal. In the beginning, verse 1, was the word. Verse 2 says, he was in the beginning with God. Now, it is possible that when John wrote this on that morning, he had his devotion in, John, in Genesis chapter 1. He probably was reading Genesis chapter 1, and you remember Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, this beginning here is as far back as you can go in our space-time continuum. You see, because God is eternal, He exists outside of this realm. He exists outside of time. And Scripture never attempts to prove the existence of God. The Bible opens up with these words, In the beginning, God creator. And when Moses wrote this, he did not say, In the beginning, there was God. No, you don't read that. Because the Bible never attempts to prove the existence of God. It takes it as a given. Now, scientists suggest that everything in this universe can be explained by the interaction between five elements. 
You have time, force, action, space, and time. The space and matter. Now, it took scientists a couple thousand years to figure that out. And yet, you have the very first verse of the Bible that says, in the beginning, that's time. God, that's force. Created, that's action. Heavens, that's space. And the earth, that's matter. From the very beginning, from the very first verse of the Bible, we see that God spoke this universe into existence. And that beginning that, John, that Moses speaks of in Genesis chapter 1, that is as far back as you can go, as I said in our space-time continuum. Now notice what's interesting here, that both Moses and John assert that there was a beginning. You know, you read your science books, and they tell you, well, you know what? It was billions, and then it's more like 14 billion or however many billions right now, and we can't even go back. But notice it had a definite beginning. This universe had a definite beginning because he says, in the beginning of creation. Now, we'll come back to that verse in just a moment. But notice what John asserts about the word when he says, in the beginning was the word. Now, J.C. Ryle was right that it is important not only to pay attention to the words, but also even to the grammar and the tense in which they are used. It is interesting here that this word was, and you see that word was is used multiple times, there are two different words in Greek to speak of helping verbs. For example, this word here, ain, where he says, in the beginning was the word. This word was, if you want to parse it, you know, back to your grammar school, right? Imperfect active indicative. What does that mean? That simply means that this is ongoing action in the past. So when John is, what John is saying, he says, you can go back as far as you can, and when that beginning took place, something already was, and that something was the word. It's also significant that John uses this word, because as I said, there's two, there are two different words. One word is translated here in our text as was, and there's another word which talks about becoming, ginomai. You probably heard of this word. When John speaks of the pre-incarnate Christ, he always uses this first word. Because you see, he, the point that he's trying to make is that this pre-incarnate one, he did not become anything. He was something. He always was. Now look at the use of this word. Look at John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Exactly the same word every single time in imperfect active indicative. Verse 2 says, and he was in the beginning with God. If you look at verse 4, in him was life, and he was the light of man. Now in the same context here, he uses a different word to speak of things that came into being. Because if you look at verse 3, all things literally became or came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Look at verse 10. He, that is Jesus, was in the world and the world, Ginomai, was made through him. Verse 14, when he speaks of the incarnation of Christ, he uses a different word when he says, and the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. Notice he was something prior to the beginning. And then when, we, when he enters into the world, the word becomes flesh. What is the point? In this very, very first phrase, John is not speaking of Jesus becoming something, but of being something. Prior to the very beginning of creation, he simply was. Now we got to ask a question here. I mean, what was before the beginning? I mean, there had to be something because in the beginning, he says here, was the word. You see, because we are created creatures, we, we can't even comprehend what it's like to be outside of this realm of space and time. Because everything we imagine, I mean, time is always connected to it. And because we are finite creatures, think of it this way. If you go back before the beginning, everything before that, we can say was eternity past. And everything in the future, once you are in glory, will be eternity future. So what John is saying here in this text, that if you go back into eternity past, the word was already there. The word was. Now we know that God alone existed in eternity past. Why? Because everything that came into being came into being when? At the beginning. 
And God is the one who brought it into being. Therefore, the only one who existed prior to that was God. So the very least that John asserts here in this first phrase is that this word that John speaks of is eternal. That's what we say. In the beginning was the word. Now notice he restates this concept again in verse 2 because he says he was in the beginning with God. Now he already made that point. He already was in perfect act indicative, continually existing prior to beginning. Now this first claim that John makes about the word, he will explain again and again all throughout the gospel. Just two examples. Remember John 8? Listen to these verses in light of John 1. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. You remember Jesus' prayer in John 17? In verse 5, he says, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, listen to this, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now, if Jesus had glory with the Father before the world was, what does that say about Jesus? That Jesus was with the Father before the world was. That's why when John opens his gospel, he says, in the beginning already was the Word. Go back as far as you can, and the Word was. Jesus is eternal. That's claim number one. Claim number two, Jesus is distinct from the Father. Again, look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Verse 2 says, He was in the beginning with God. Now let's first identify who God is in this verse. There are eight uses of God in this prologue. We have three of them in first two verses. And then you have in verse 6, There came a man sent from God, whose name was John. You come to verse 12 and it says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believed in his name, who were born, verse 13, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now we'll return to verses 1 and 2, but what do we learn about this God from this prologue? Well, according to verse 6, verse 6 this God sent John. According to verse 12, those who believe in, him, in Christ are his children. According to verse 13, he is the one who causes people to be born again. Now look at verse 18. Because verse 18 explicitly identifies him as the Father. Look at verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Notice there are two persons here. You have no one have seen God. That is the Father because the God in the flesh came to explain the Father. So therefore, the God that John speaks of in verse 1 has to be God the Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with the Father. That is what John is saying in this verse. Now, notice this preposition here. He was with God. Now, this preposition has a range of meaning. It could mean to, it could mean with, it could mean toward, before, among, there are a few others. But notice, with this argument, John is taking it one step further. If in, verse, in the first phrase he said that this word was eternal, now he says that this word was in relationship to the Father. In the beginning was the word, which means that he already existed. Now, he says that this word is distinct from God. Because notice, if you are with God, then obviously he's not referring to the same person. So we have two persons, at least, existing in eternity past, and they are not the same. That's what he's saying. Because the word existed, and the word was with God. If God refers to the Father, the word has to be someone else who is distinct from the Father. But wait, there's more. Because notice, it doesn't just say that there were two persons who existed in eternity past. 
These two persons had relationship with one another. They related to one another. Because this word here, pros, it could be translated, and the word was face to face with God. It speaks of a relationship that there is between God and the word. Now this is amazing because this idea that John gives us here in the seed form, it will explode all throughout the gospel. Because no other gospel makes such point explicitly that Jesus will walk around and again and again, he will claim that he is from God, that he has come from the Father. Listen to a few examples. John 4, 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Somebody sent me. And I came to accomplish his work. Chapter 5, verse 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. John chapter 6, verse 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Chapter 6, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And notice again and again, Jesus will harp on this saying, Listen, I did not come on my own initiative. The Father has sent me. And I have come to reveal the Father. So when John opens his gospel by saying that the Word was with God, he's saying that there were two distinct persons who were related to one another, and then one sent the other. The Word was with God. But those are just two phrases. And what do we learn about Christ already? That He is eternal, and that He is distinct from the Father. Here's the third claim that John makes about the Word. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Look again at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, you have to do a lot of hermeneutical gymnastics to argue that this verse does not teach that Jesus is God. And there are people like that. Well, you can be a Jehovah false witness, and you can read their translation of the Bible, New World Translation, which translates this verse this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. That's how they translate this. Now, since they deny deity of Christ, they cannot allow this verse clearly teach that Jesus is God. But if Jesus is a God, here's a question. How many gods are there? I mean, they don't even solve the problem that they're trying to avoid. Now, how can you know that the translation that we have in our text is actually accurate? According to Julius Manti, who is the author of a manual, Grammar of Greek New Testament, so he probably knows a little bit about Greek, he wrote this, 99% of scholars in the world who know Greek and who have helped translate the Bible are in disagreement with the Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, if 99% of the people who know what they're talking about disagree with you, the odds of you being right are slim to none. I mean, unless, of course, there are 400 prophets of Baal, right? But he says 99% of people who know what they're talking about disagree with their translation that Jesus was a God. Now, let's examine this phrase, the word was God. Now, if Jehovah's Witnesses, like I said, they show up to your door and they start telling you that Jesus is not God and you know your Bible, you know John 1.1 and you go and you open your Bible and say, but look at this, look at it, it says here Jesus is God. And they'll say something like this, well, do you know that the word God that is used in this text here does not have a definite article? You know, that's why we cannot translate this as Jesus is God, but we simply have to say that Jesus had some divine qualities. Jesus was the Son of God, but Jesus definitely was not God. How are you going to respond to that? Oh, it doesn't have a definite article, and your response will be, show, so what? So what? How would we respond? Respond. Now, first, we have to know, and for people who studied this, they know that the way the article is used in Greek is different than it is used in English. Just one simple thing here, not to get too complicated, but English has both definite article and an indefinite article. 
We have the and we have a. When it comes to Greek, Greek only has a definite article. And the way that is used is completely different than it is used for. There is an overlap, but you can't just draw a straight equivalence between English use of an article and the one in Greek. Now let's examine the gram grammar of this text. Again, look at this one simple phrase. The word was God. If you were to, you know, remember, go back to your school, right? And your teacher would ask you to parse every word in this sentence, right? And you will say, well, what's clear in this text is that there are two nouns here that are connected by a helping verb, was, right? You have the word, and you have God, and you have the helping verb, was. Now, we know here, based on our English translation, that one is the subject of a sentence, and the second noun here is a predicate, noun, a predicate nominative. And predicate nominative simply means that that word predicates something about the subject. So if I were to say, Tony is pastor. So Tony is the subject, pastor is who he is. So when here he says here, the word was God. Now, based on the word order in our English translation, we know that the word is the subject, and we have, know that God is predicate nominative. But how do you know that that is the case in Greek? How do you know that they translated it accurately? And it is true that the word God does not have an article in Greek. And the reason why we know that this is a correct translation, because if you were to read Greek, Greek marks the subject of a sentence with an article. And that's how you know in this verse here that John says the word was God and not saying God was the word. Now, what if you were to put an article for both the word and the God? If you were to put an article for both the word and the God, then the word was would become an equal sign. And John would be saying the word equals God. Now, if John were to do that, he would be teaching heresy because he would be saying that the word is the father. And that's heretical. That's why John says specifically here, the word was God. And what if he were to remove article for both the word and God? Again, you would have the same equal sign, and that would be heresy, because the word does not equal the Father. So when John is talking about in this verse here, he is describing what the word is. The word was deity. So when John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word is the subject, but what the word was is God. Now let's return to this argument that, well, you have to have an article in order for it to be God. The problem with this argument is that John himself speaks of the Father using the word God without article. In fact, you don't have to go far, because if you just go down to verse 18, same context, it says here, no one has seen God at any time. Guess what? God here does not have an article. In fact, God is the very first word in the sentence. It doesn't have an article. You can't see that in English here, but it doesn't. And even they do not disagree with the fact that this is reference to the Father because it says that the word came in order to reveal the Father. Now, if you're still not convinced and you still want an article, well, guess what? There are verses in the Bible that speak of Jesus as God with an article. Turn to John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, verse 28, you have confession of Thomas. After Jesus appeared to Thomas, and he says, hey, take your finger, take your hand, and listen to what Thomas says. Thomas answered and said to him, who's he addressing? He's addressing Jesus. And what does he say to him? My Lord and my God. And here, again, you can't see this in English translation, but it has a definite article before God. And notice both of these are addressed to Christ. Because Thomas looks at Christ and he says, you are my Lord and you are my God. Because Jehovah's Witnesses would have you say, would have you believe that he says, my Lord and my God. Nonsense. Don't see that anywhere in the text. He said to him, he said to Christ, my Lord and my God. So therefore... No matter how you twist it, you cannot walk away from this text believing that John is not teaching that Jesus is God. Now, having examined the grammar, and we can see, clearly see here grammatically that he's referring to Christ as God. Now, think of the claim itself. 
the word was God. I mean, in the previous phrase, John told us that God, the Father, is God. Now, he says that whatever God is, that is what the word is. Now, the only way to make sense of this is to say that while they are distinct persons, they possess the same essence. Whatever the Father is in His essence, that is what the Word is also. I mean, again, this is an astounding claim that is hard for us to comprehend as creatures. I mean, think about this. The baby that was born in the manger is the same baby that spoke the universe into existence. I mean, how do you comprehend that? What about Jesus, who was sleeping on a boat because he was so tired from ministry, and yet this is the same Jesus who is upholding the universe and who can control weather and everything else? How do you reconcile those two? He who breathed his last as a criminal on a Roman cross is the one who is sustaining your breath today. Wow. No wonder people had a hard time believing in his deity. How? How? I, I can't comprehend this. And that's why even though you can't comprehend this, and you're like, how does that work? The question is not whether I can understand it, but whether that is what John is saying here. And that is exactly what he's saying here. Deity of Christ will be a major theme in this book. All throughout, John will assert that Jesus is God. John 1.14 the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, you and I have our beginning when we are conceived in a womb. But notice what John says about the Word. The Word became flesh. Why? Because the Word did not have the beginning in Mary's womb. The Word was prior to the beginning. And then if you fast forward, you got to what? 4,000 years of history when Christ enters into the world. For 4,000 years, this Christ who spoke the universe into existence was upholding this universe. And then according to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, it says the Father prepared a body for Him. And so this God who existed without the body, who did not have a physical form, did not have human nature, adds to himself human nature. And as he says here, he becomes the Word. Because the Word was, because the Word is spirit, prior to his incarnation, now he puts on human flesh. Look at 118. No one has seen God at any time. That's an amazing verse. And we'll study it later on in details. But notice it says, no one has seen God. Therefore, you can take this verse, apply it to everything you know of the Old Testament. Every time people saw God in the Old Testament, according to this verse, they didn't see the Father. They saw Christ. And so what he says here, no one has seen God, the only begotten God, reference to Christ, who is in the bosom of the Father. He came to explain Him, exegete Him, exegesis. He explains, He reveals Him. Fast forward to chapter 5. Look at verse 15. For this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Why? Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. His audience understood that Jesus was putting equal signs in terms of his essence between himself and the Father. And Jesus didn't correct him. He just doubled down on that claim. Look at John 8 again. We read this verse earlier. The Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. How did they respond? Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. You see, in Exodus, and the book of Isaiah, God reveals himself as the great I am. And Jesus says here, before Abraham was, I am. And so they understood that Jesus was taking God's name and applying it to himself, and they thought that he was blaspheming. And because the penalty for blasphemy was stoning, that's why they tried to stone him again and again. Go to chapter 9. You remember there he, he was a man was blind from birth. Look at the conclusion of that chapter. Jesus heard that they 
had put him out. And finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. He did what? He worshipped him. But worship belongs exclusively to God. And notice Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 don't worship me, worship. No, he worshipped him. And Jesus didn't stop him. Finally, John 10, listen to verse 30. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Can John be more explicit about Jesus' identity? No. Again and again, Jesus reveals himself as God. Now, you might disagree with this claim, but you cannot claim that Jesus never claimed to be God. I mean, you have to be blind and reading your Bible in a dark room, upside down in Swahili to make that claim. No. If you read this, it's clear. Jesus is God. Now, here's a question. Why does John insist again and again on the divinity of Christ? Why is it necessary to believe that Jesus is God? Well, first, John insists on that because that's who Jesus is. I mean, just to be accurate, just to be factual, you have to believe that Jesus is God. Listen, if you do not believe that Jesus is God and still claim to believe in Jesus, you do not believe in Jesus of the Bible. You might believe in some other Jesus out there, but it's not Jesus of the Bible. Now, secondly, notice here, unless you believe that Jesus is God, you cannot be saved. You can't be saved unless you believe in the deity of Christ. How do we know that? John 8, 24. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. You see, Jesus, who is not God, cannot save you. I mean, if Jesus was a perfect man, the best he can do is to save another man. But the reason why Jesus can save all who come to, you, to him is because his sacrifice has such infinite value because of who he is, the Son of God. That's why he could be the Savior of the world. And guess what? Jesus is either who he said he is or he's a liar. You can't just take some of the things that you like. Well, Jesus was a good moral teacher. Well, Jesus said a lot of good and helpful things. Well, guess what? If Jesus lied about his identity, what else did he lie about? I mean, if you walked around claiming to be God, and that was not true, how can you take anything he said as true? You can't. And you can clearly see that he walked around claiming that he was divine. And guess what? When he walked out of that tomb on the third day, he verified that everything he said about himself was absolutely true. His claim that I am God and I have come from God was verified by the fact that the Father raised the Son from the dead. And so he says, everything I said about myself was absolutely true and therefore you better believe it. First three claims. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is distinct from the Father. And Jesus is God. Listen, if you take just this one verse here, you can refute multiple heresies that have plagued the church for a long, long time. Refutes Arianism, which claims that Jesus is somehow inferior to the Father. This one verse here refutes modalism, which claims that there is only one person in the Godhead. And sometimes he shows up as a father, sometimes he shows up as a son, and sometimes he shows up as a spirit. Now, if you have the Word who is with God, we're talking about at least two distinct persons. It refutes Unitarianism, which claims that Jesus was not God, but man. A good man and holy man, but still man. No. The text is clear. Jesus is God. Let's look at the fourth claim. And the fourth claim is this. Jesus is the creator. Look at verse 3. All things came into being through him. 
And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. One of the existential questions that people ask and that they wrestle with is, why is there something rather than nothing? I mean, you've thought about that. I mean, why does anything exist? Where did all this come from? And you see, as a human being, you need an answer to that question. And every worldview attempts to answer this question. Well, here's the biblical answer to this question. All things exist because the Word brought them about. That's why all things exist. Now, what do all things include? Because he says here, all things came into being through him. Now, John clarifies that all things refer to all things that came into being. Now, this is important because, by definition, this cannot include the Word. Right? Because John already said, in the beginning was the Word. The Word did not come into being, but the Word was. And everything that has come into being has come into being through the Word. Second. The Word was the one who brought all things into being because notice the text says all things came into being through Him. Now in case you think that there is an exception and that somehow Jesus, maybe maybe He came into existence sometimes prior to the beginning. Notice what John says here. And nothing came into being that has come into being apart from the Word. Therefore, anything that has had a beginning had a beginning through the Word. Therefore, if Jesus is a created being, then Jesus must have created Himself. Because apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Therefore, you can go back as far as you can, and the Word was there. And if you go back into eternity past, there was never a time when the Word did not exist. Jesus Christ is eternal. Jesus Christ, this verse asserts here, is the creator and he's not a creation. All things that came into being came into being through Christ. Now when he says here that all things came into being through him, it does not imply that the word is somehow inferior to the Father in terms of his essence. Because you have verses like these, Colossians 1.16, for by him... All things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Now, also, when John says all things came into being through him, he's not saying that Jesus was the only one involved in creation and that the Father and the Spirit were somehow not involved. No, we know that all persons of the Trinity were intimately involved in the creation. The Father, who is the initiator of all divine activities, He's the one who created all things through the Son. Now listen to this. We have a hint of this in the very first three verses of the Bible. In the beginning, God, that's the reference to the Father, created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and the darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God, that's the Spirit, was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, that's the word, let there be light, and there was light. All things came into being because the Father created all things through the Son. And that's why John says here that nothing came into being that has come into being apart from the word. All things exclude the word because he's not a created being. All things also exclude evil and sin because these were not part of original creation. Remember Genesis chapter 1? When God creates all things in six days, and he concludes that chapter by saying God saw that all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. If there is sin at that time, he couldn't have said that. Sin came into the world somewhere in in that white space between chapter 2 and chapter 3 of the book of Genesis. All things were good because they come from good God. As we bring our time to a close and we'll examine the other claims next Sunday, I want us to ask the question, so what? So what? You might say, well, listen, this is like a, you know, like like as if I'm in class, going through all these grammar, all the words here. What's the point? Why? And we say, okay, John, why are you writing this? Why should I care about this? I want to finish by giving you four reasons 
why you should care about this. Four reasons why this is relevant to you. Reason number one, you exist because of Jesus of John chapter 1. That is the first reason. You are alive today. You are sitting here. You are breathing this air because of Jesus of John chapter 1. We said that the foundational question that everybody has to answer is why is there something rather than nothing? And here's John's answer. You exist and this world exists because Jesus brought it into existence. Because Jesus caused it to exist. In fact, you can't explain creation apart from Jesus. If you don't understand Jesus, you do not understand this world. If you don't understand the Bible, you don't understand why you exist and why the world exists. That's reason one. Oh, you should care about this. But this brings us to the second reason. It is this. Since Jesus created you, you are accountable to him. The reason why people want to deny the existence of God is because they want to deny accountability. We talked about this before because as soon as you assume that there is no creation, that, that there is no creator, then guess what? You're not accountable to anybody. If you came out of nothing and you're going into nothing, then just do whatever you want. But as soon as there is a creator who created you, and as soon as you realize that one day you will stand before that creator and you will give account for every thought, every word, every action, all of a sudden everything changes. And according to verse 1, this Jesus is the one in verse 3 who spoke this universe into existence. This Jesus is the one who created you and me. And guess what? Because he did, then you and I will give an account to this Jesus. You and I are liable for every word, every deed, and every action. There is pain and suffering in this life, and there is torment in the next. And this brings us to the third reason why you should care about this. third reason is this. Believing in Jesus doesn't save you from damnation, but believing in Jesus of the Bible does. And the reason why I put it this way is because Jehovah's Witnesses claim to believe in Jesus. Mormons believe in Jesus. Muslims believe in Jesus. But it does not mean that they're saved. As we said already, for you to be saved, you must believe in Jesus of the Bible. That's why John labors so hard and he's so precise with his language in order to reveal this Jesus to us so that we may understand who he is and we would believe in this Jesus. And if we believe in this Jesus then we will be saved. This Jesus actually saves. You remember the purpose of the Gospel of John? Let me remind you, John 20, 31, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. You see, it is only if you believe in this Jesus that you can have life. If you deny that He is God, or if you deny that he is man, or if you deny any aspect of his identity, if you deny any aspect of his work, you are not believing in Jesus. You might call him Jesus. You might even pray to this Jesus, but he's not the Jesus that saves. John presents to us Christ that can save you. Finally, fourth reason why this is relevant to you, because this Jesus of whom John writes in this passage is God and therefore deserves your worship. John just said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is one of the most explicit passages in the Bible about Jesus' deity. Now guess what? If He is God, then He deserves to be worshipped. And if you don't worship Jesus, you are robbing Him of something that is His by right. God deserves to be worshipped. If you don't worship this Jesus, you cannot worship the Father. Because in this gospel, God, John will say again and again and again, there is only one way for you to access the Father, and that is to worship me. That is to honor me as you honor the Father. If you don't honor me, you cannot honor the Father. 
So all those religions that claim that they worship one and only God, but they dismiss Jesus, they are not worshiping God because they cannot worship God when you dismiss Christ. If this Christ is who he said he is, and he is, then he deserves worship. And therefore, if we do not worship him, we are robbing him of the glory that is his. And guess what? You will stand before him one day, and you will give an account for robbing him of what is his because he has given you breath so that you worship him. Therefore, if this is the case, and it is, let us praise this Jesus because he made us. Let us revere him because we are to give an account to him. Let us believe in this Jesus because he is the source of salvation. Remember in John 10? He says, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. This Jesus wants to save you. This Jesus wants to give you life. But you must believe in him and you must accept him the way he he is presented in this book. Let us worship him because he's God and he deserves worship. Like that blind man who received his sight, he worshiped him. Let us, as we work through this book, fall on our face and say, Lord Jesus, you deserve to be worshiped because of who, he, who you are and because of what you do. That is our prayer, that this gospel would stir worship in our heart for Jesus because he deserves it. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. Christ, we thank you for coming into this world. And though you are God, and though you were worshipped in heaven before the beginning, yet you stepped into this time and space and you lived to reveal the Father. And today, because our eyes are open, we can worship you. We give you praise. We love you. And we thank you for being so generous with us. In your name we pray. Amen.